Longshot Radio is radio made super fast. In two days, we take a theme and experiment with new types of stories and new ways of collaborating. We try to make as many pieces with as many other producers as possible. We also don't sleep very much. My name's Jody Avergan. I'm one of six who make up the Longshot Core. This time around, we're coming to you from the 99% Conference in New York. It's a two-day conference all about creativity and making things happen. There's lots of interesting conversations taking place all around us. The 99% Conference asked Radiolab and Longshot to come by and help tell stories about creativity. We got especially curious about the dark side of the creative process. Failure, revision, and not knowing if your first idea is any good, but maybe your next one is. That is, of course, part of what we love about this project to begin with. We're always running up against small failures over the course of the 48 hours, but we're also always finding ways to adjust and make something new. We also thought, why not widen our net and let people explore those stories from all over the country, not just here at the conference? The best way to do that, of course, is online. So we set up a page on the Radiolab blog, added a little widget where people could record their stories, and then we tweeted out the link. And people responded. Hey, this is Sean Sullivan from the state of New Jersey. Hi, hi, hi. This is Lisa Walter from Dallas, Texas. This is Kevin White of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And My name is Marico Valentine, and I'm from Los Angeles, California. My name is Anna Lemons, and I, I, I am a student at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. This is Jericho Rowe from Hawaii. So what you're listening to is a sampling of some of the work that came in over the course of the two days from all around the country. On the blog, some people asked questions, and then some people answered. Then we paired them up. Hey, this is Sean Sullivan from the great state of New Jersey. Tell me about a time that you created a mess that was so big that you couldn't clean it up yourself. Hi, Sean. This is Afee from the great state of Ohio. And what I'm going to tell you about in answer to your question is the time I decided to cook in my mama's kitchen when we lived in San Diego, California. Now, what I decided to cook in my mama's kitchen was mud pies. I can't even tell you how I got the mud from outside upstairs because you had to come up a couple of flights of stairs. And I decided to cook these mud pies on my mama's cookie sheets. Now check this out. I was old enough to know that I couldn't eat the mud pies and I knew I couldn't turn the stove on, but I distinctly remember thinking, oh, I'll solve those problems later. I don't know where my mother was, possibly sleep, probably trying to get a little bit of rest from uh, us. I only know that when she came into the kitchen, here I was happily ensconced in her kitchen on the floor, mud and water everywhere. 
And the fact that I remember this at all must be uh, pretty interesting because I am well past three. I am well past 43. I am actually past 53. But I truly remember that I did not get a spanking. Some kind of way she cleaned it up and I had cookies. Not mud pies. Thanks and hope you're having a great time. Bye-bye. That piece edited by our very own Brendan Baker. You know, this is as good a time as any to mention He Chang Lee and Alexander McMahon. These guys spent the last two days writing original music for this project. So all of the scoring you're hearing in these pieces was made just for Longshot over the last 48 hours. We also convinced Chang to voice some of the intros. So here's another conversation that came in through the Radiolab blog. You're listening to highlights from the Longshot Radio and Radiolab Story Booth. We're talking about creativity, revision, and failure at the 99% Conference in New York City and online at longshotradio.com. Hi, this is Lisa Walter from Dallas, Texas. Tell me about a time when you had to start from scratch. Hi, this is Jericho Rell from Hawaii, um, coming from the little town of Kapa'a. A very pivotal time in my life was when I was 19 and living in Lake Tahoe, California. And I had dropped out of college. I was very um, immersed in the party scene there, and I decided that I wanted to change my life entirely. So I sold all of my belongings and bought a ticket and I had $200 in my pocket and a tent. It was the most challenging time of my life. Um, And the most humbling. I remember sleeping in beach parks and uh, on on the beaches. I lived in a cave for a while. And just through meeting people, everything started to fall together. And um, I went back to I, school. I, I went to massage school. And I met someone and I had a child. But that time in my life was, looking back on it in retrospect, one of the purest and and most amazing times of my life. And I am so grateful that that I took that, that leap of faith and came here to this island. And I've been here 10 years now. Thanks for listening. There's lots more online at longshotradio.com. Okay, there's the conference, there's online, but there's also the real world. Longshot producer Alex Goldmark went out into the neighborhood to talk about creativity. His question, a good idea idea is like a family pet pet. because... Uh, A good idea is like a family pet because you have to feed it and... um, It's often loud and obnoxious and you ignore it until somebody else thinks of it and has the same one. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. (laughs) There you go. A family what? Good idea is like a family pet? I don't know what good idea is. What is a good idea? It's like a pet, you know, if you just see a pet on the street, it's nice. But if you have it, it's good. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. There you go. (laughs) Like a family pet. It's shared and it grows as you you feed it. <laughs> you have to pay attention to it and understand what you're doing. Yeah, you know, it, that's a good idea. There you go. Okay, our family pet is named Chihiro. <laughs> I think that was a great idea. If you thought of it, you'll love it like a pet. If everybody else likes it, you could claim it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, that's a good idea. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like a family pet. It's weird. It's weird to say it's a family pet. I don't know why. During Longshot, we also invite other radio producers to submit fully produced pieces of their own, as long as they take up our 48-hour challenge. Our theme of failure and creativity got San Francisco producer Nathan Dalton thinking about John Cage. The year was 1938. The young composer John Cage was approached by Sevilla Fort, a dance student at the Cornish School in Seattle, where Cage was working. Fort was preparing a dance program called Bacchanal. At the time, Cage was interested in percussion, and he thought that her dance would be the perfect opportunity to compose a work with percussion instruments. The only problem was that the performance space was so small that it wouldn't fit all the instruments he had in mind. The only instrument available to him was a grand piano. So Cage went about changing the piano into a percussion instrument. I went into the kitchen and got a pie plate and came back and put it on the strings. And I knew I was going in the right direction when I heard the sound, but it bounced. So I got a nail and it slipped. Then I got a, a wood screw and with the grooves, it, it was just right, it stayed in position. And shortly I had uh, s- such fascinating possibilities that I wrote the Bacchanal very quickly. Cage's prepared pianos became a sensation and helped launch him into fame. His works inspired a generation of young composers and still do today. By the way, remember that conference taking place? There were some really interesting people there, including Charlie Todd, the founder of Improv Everywhere. We caught up with him and asked him about a time that he'd failed. Unfortunately, it was a very rainy night. It was the worst possible weather. It was late May, but for some reason it was 40 degrees and it was pouring rain. And it had been pouring rain for four days in a row. And I just realized in the moment, I am screwed. Like, everybody's going to be mad at me. And not only that, we're going to have nothing to show for it. I'm Charlie Todd, the founder of Improv Everywhere, and I'm going to tell a story about failure. This was back in 2008, and Improv Everywhere had sort of exploded in popularity. We had a video where we had 200 people freeze in place in the Grand Central Terminal, and that video went viral. All of a sudden, it was on the front page of YouTube, and it got 30 million views. And my list of people who wanted to participate in my next project in New York completely ballooned. So I got an idea to do something on the Brooklyn Bridge. And somebody emailed that you should do a wave that would would happen in a football stadium or whatever. Like, you should do that on a street in Manhattan. And somebody else emailed me about, what if you got a bunch of camera flashes go off at the same time? Those ideas arrived in my inbox in the same day, and I put them together, and I was like, oh, by themselves, I don't love either one, but wouldn't it be cool if I had a wave of camera flashes? The concept was to line the Brooklyn Bridge with as many people as possible. So the effect would be for anybody who was in lower Manhattan looking towards the bridge, you would see this wave of light go from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And I sent out the invitation for it. About 800 people showed up. I'm standing in the rain with an umbrella. Everybody's got umbrellas. This is in Foley Square in 
downtown New York City, lower Manhattan. And there are 800 people, and they're there. They're already miserable because it's pouring rain. They're looking to me, what is this great idea we're going to do? I've been told to bring a camera with a flash. That's all I know. I tell them the idea over a megaphone. It gets a good reaction. People seem to like the idea. Um, And then the logistics started, and it just ended up being a logistical nightmare. We walked over there sort of one by one, and I figured we'd just start a line. Like, I would go first, I would get to the end of the bridge, I would stop, and then everybody else would just line up in a single file line. It took forever. You know, this is a mob of people who are now sort of starting to get a little unhappy, and I'm, you know, I'm worried that a police officer is going to see us and ask what's going on. I had no permission. I had no authorization. So I had 800 people line the length of the Brooklyn Bridge without permission. It started. Finally, everyone was in place. The idea was just, I would take a photo, the person on my left would take a photo, and then when the person to your right took a photo, you'd take a photo. Therefore, the light would travel across the bridge, and it would look beautiful, and it'd be a great video, and it'd be great for anybody who saw it. Well, I took the photo, and then two more people took a photo, and then it stopped. The person four away from me wasn't paying attention. So I was like, okay, well, we'll start again. I'd started again, and then it got about six, and it stopped. And I realized, you know, it has to get to 800. And I failed twice now to get it to seven. So at that point, I realized that my design was a failure. How is this possibly going to work? I have 800 people who've been standing in the rain for, at this point, over an hour, who have trusted that they're going to come to this fun Improv Everywhere project that's going to be worth their while. Not only that, but now it looks like it's not even going to work. It will truly have been a waste of time. So I had to make a decision in that moment what to do. And the only option I saw was to run. I took a photo and I just started running. And I just started screaming at every person that I passed, flash, flash, take a picture, take a picture, flash. You know, and as I'm going, people are sort of caught off guard. They're fumbling in their camera and they're doing it. And in the end, it sort of worked. That was a crazy moment in my life. You know, I'm carrying an umbrella. I've got a raincoat on. The wind's blowing. I'm getting wet in every direction. And I'm running the length of the Brooklyn Bridge, just screaming at these people. No one wanted to be there for another second. I've sort of developed an expertise in doing things with large numbers of people, with thousands of people. And I try to design the activities to be as idiot-proof as possible. You know, not to insult the participants, but... Someone's not listening to the instructions. Someone wasn't paying attention. Someone's a friend of someone who didn't even want to be there. Their friend talked them into it. Somebody got there late, didn't hear the instructions. So I have to make it as simple as I can make it. Improv Everywhere started as a project that was just myself and a couple of friends. But at this point in 2008, Improv Everywhere was so big that these people were just people. I didn't know them. They didn't really know me. They just knew my website. You know, the lesson I learned is that In designing these big participatory things, you have to think about the participant. The point of it's it's not actually that much fun to freeze in place in Grand Central Terminal. But you know that you're part of a team who's working to make it something that's astonishing for a commuter or a tourist walking through Grand Central. Oh, my God. Like, it looked like time stopped. But when you're individually doing it, you know, maybe you're staring at your watch or you're, you know, you're trying not to blink. Your eyes are fixed somewhere. It's not actually fun. For me, like... The true failure would be not trying something. The whole point is to give others a great story. Let's move from Charlie, who was able to run away from an ugly situation, to Kim Worker of Vancouver. She's running headfirst into ugliness. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my friend Miranda. 
Miranda is a successful photographer who does things like decide to learn how to fire pottery for a big craft fair she'll participate in in two weeks, and her pottery will be stunning, and she'll sell out of it. A couple of years ago, Miranda sat in my living room and held up the creature she'd just made out of fabric scraps and googly eyes. It resembled a Muppet, if the Muppet were hunchbacked, stuffed with glass, and had an eye in its mouth. She'd made that creature because I had invited her and a few other crafty friends to make something ugly. Not cute ugly, but ugly ugly. On purpose. In part for the novelty of making something ugly on purpose, and in part to explore this idea I have that setting out to create something that's usually considered a failure can be a very valuable exercise. Back in my living room, Miranda pointed to her ugly creature's body, to a pipe cleaner she'd attached to it, and she told us about her first grade teacher, Mrs. O., and about making a diorama from leaves, moss, and other autumnal detritus she'd collected. She encountered a problem in assembling her diorama. She just couldn't get the white glue to make the pine cone stick to the cardboard box. In my grade one world, I was like, okay, well, you know what, maybe if I put like a band of glue like over top of the pine cone and like really carefully so that it'll actually stay connected and let it dry, maybe it'll hold on this pine cone. And it actually worked. And so this, um, this is a tribute to that. So this has been glued on using glue over top of the device as a band. And the very next time, uh, basically after we finished all these projects, um, the teacher stood in front of the class and held up my diorama as an example of how not to use glue. So this is F-U, Mrs. O. In the two years since that night, I've made ugly creatures with all sorts of people, from a man who made his creature entirely from buttons because he literally has a button phobia, to a woman who used only staples to assemble her sea creature because, she told me, technology has no place in art. We're taught from a very young age to value beauty. From the time we can hold a crayon, we're told our scribbles are such a pretty picture. And yet, focusing so wholly on creating beauty leaves us devaluing and avoiding the ugliness in ourselves. Setting out to deliberately make something ugly forces us to examine the parts of ourselves we try to pretend don't exist. Almost everyone I've done this project with says it's a good thing to do in the end. They tell me they see their materials in a whole new way, or that they've gained insight into their creative process. Because that's what making something ugly is all about— It's about forcing ourselves to focus almost entirely on the process of creating something, rather than on creating something that will have some kind of beautiful value. At the end of my workshops, I set out a big trash bin. Most people don't want to keep their ugly creatures when they're done. They've exercised their demons and don't want to be reminded about it. Except for the one or two who hold their monstrosities tight to their chest like a badge of creative triumph. A few of these celebrants are people who came into the workshop insisting they're not creative at all, and so they love their ugly creature for being proof they can make something original. Most, though, most of the people who keep their ugly creatures keep them so they can cling tight to the discovery that they can stare their ugliness right in the face and survive. Kim Worker of Vancouver. That story was produced by Longshot's Pat Walters, and Kim's project is called Mighty Ugly. As we mentioned, Longshot found itself at the 99% conference because our friends at Radiolab asked us to help out. Now, Jad Abumrad, the host of Radiolab, gave a great talk at the beginning of the second day. Here's a bit of Jad talking about the origins of that show and how he dealt with possible failure. How did Radiolab happen? Because that's a question that I get a lot now, particularly from people inside public radio. So uh, I went off and uh, did a little bit of reporting about how actually did this show come into the world. Called up the guy who was with me at the beginning. His name's Michael Elsesser. 
Michael and I actually created the show uh, way back in 2002. And uh, he and I did it together. And I asked him, like, tell me your recollections of the beginning. And he said two words to me. Gut churn. Gut churn. <laughs> like, like years and years of being sick to my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting at my desk for long stretches of time, just kind of rubbing my head. <laughs> you know, and pushing on my temples just because it, cause it just, my head just hurt <laughs> because I couldn't find a way to describe what we were doing with it in a way that anybody could, could call sort of rational or linear. And I, I, I really love that creative experience and I wanted to create as much room for, for you for that as possible, but I knew that someday somebody's gonna ask us what was going on. Yeah. What's the long-term plan for this and how are we gonna pay for it? And it was a long time before we were able to answer those questions. So in that big in-between space is where all that gut churn was, because you just had to sit with it. That feeling Michael is describing, this is the stomach ceasing to function, because the body is saying to itself, right now we have to run for our lives. <laughs> for some reason uh, that I can't really explain, at the beginning of Radiolab, it always felt like life or death. But it may have something to do with that radical uncertainty that you feel when you're trying to work without a template, which is not something I think we as a creative community talk enough about, how crummy it feels to make something that's new. I mean, we had, we had the show, uh, we called it Radio Lab. Uh, that was, I mean, rock, I mean uh, Michael from the beginning, the only thing he said to me was, just make it different. Uh, it happened in the uh, smallest, most surprising ways that I could have never predicted. I'll give you an example. 2003, I stay up all night playing with uh, the sound of radio static and a couple of voices that we'd recorded. And in the morning, I had about 20, 30-second uh, sonic IDs. I'll play you some of the original ones. <laughs> OK. You're listening to Radio, radio Lab. Lab on New York Public Radio. Public Radio, WNYC. Here's another one. <laughs> You're listening to Radio, radio Lab. Lab on New York Public Radio. WNYC. Wait, what? What? Keep listening. Okay. I mean, it was just fucking around, really. Um, but I cannot tell you why that collection of noises was important. It sounds kind of quaint to me now. But when we heard it the next day, it was the first time that we actually had heard anything. And we thought, huh, we could be that. That's interesting. It was sort of like we were lost in this forest. And then suddenly, in the darkness, this arrow appeared. And it was like pointing the way somewhere. We didn't, weren't quite sure where, but it said, follow me. You know, in storytelling, we talk about pointing arrows. It's like those moments in the story where, where you cue the audience that something is important. You know, you say something like, and that's the moment where everything changed. If you want to hear all of Jad's speech, full of more gut churn and more pointing arrows that he took a chance on, visit radiolab.org. Now, a few more voices from around the country who our producer, Emma Jacobs, was able to connect through our blog and using social media. My question for you is, um, what do you do those times when you are awake 
alone in the middle of the night. Oh my. A lot of people find the middle of the night a really contemplative time where they're doing their deepest thinking, but for me, I'm just sort of awake and really wish that I was still sleeping. hard thing about answering a middle of the night question in the middle of the day is just that those far, dark, lonely places just seem so manageable. I guess sleepy time, whiskey, worry, repeat. A friend of mine that I knew long ago said to me that when you're trying to fall back asleep and you, and you, and you can't, you should, you should let your head fall on the pillow and forget that you ever existed. And uh, that's, that's worked sometimes. Okay, we have time for one more story about creativity and failure. This comes to us from Posey Gruner and Sam Greenspan. One of the great stories that I remember in my life was walking into New York City in 1974 and wanting to put solar collectors up. An impossible, crazy idea from a New Mexico cowboy architect philosopher. I'm Travis Price. I live in Washington and I practice architecture. I teach graduate studios at Castle Originally, University. Originally, I graduated my degree in architecture and philosophy out in New Mexico and building the first passive solar houses based on looking at pueblos and historic buildings. And I suddenly had this strong, not suddenly, but over time had this very strong penchant to help. So I moved to New York City thinking in a Quixotic way that I would just create a solar remedy for the city. If you could do it in New York City during a recession in a ghetto, you could do it anywhere in the world. That was my impossible creative idea. Lower East Side, East Harlem, it was rough, I think. There was a building an hour, according to Bill Moyers, being burnt to the ground that year. An hour. Why would a solar concept even fly there? And of course, when you walk up on the roof of all these uh, tenements, you see a field, a perfectly laid solar field, ready to go. How was I gonna get money for solar hot water heaters when nobody even knew what it was? My mind, in the puzzle of it all, just started snapping with ideas, taking over old buildings, housing organizers. Let's put insulation in these buildings. Let's put solar. Solar collector from a friend. Get it on the roof. Wires and ropes. That became exciting, but um, I still didn't have money. I had spent months, months hitchhiking to Washington. I, had, I lived on two grand a year in New York City. It was tough. <laughs> and uh, thank God for a few girlfriends and some lunches. You know? But it was... Uh, I'd failed every time when I went to Washington, you know. And uh, I have a pretty stubborn, hard Georgia head. And, you know, I don't know. I think it, my, it's like, as my father used to say, root hog or die. He was a Georgia farmer. And um, I remember one day just coming up with a connection I made at some meeting with some... Loi Saida, it was called. It was like Neurican and the Neurican Poets Cafe, and everybody was there. So. Lola Redford, Bob Redford's wife, Rabbit Nazario, Mike Friedberg, and I get hooked to someone else and someone else. And then suddenly, Dick Ottinger at the time, who was on a board, uh, a specific congressional board, and I was 23 or 4, I didn't even know what these terms were. I just sort of intuitively... I got him on the roof to watch the collectors. I got the NBC affiliate there somehow, and... 
had water pouring down these collectors and steam coming up. And in that moment, I still didn't have the money. So what I did was I ran down the five flights, ran down an entire block to the only payphone within two blocks and called the Washington and said, I'm on the roof with the congressman, with the press. Are we going to build this or not? And I said, they said, mm, yes. I ran up the stairs and proudly announced on the, the news with the congressman that we had just been told by the specific bureaucrat in Washington that we had the money. We got it. <laughs> we got the solar collectors up. Uh, in the middle of the snow that winter. We got a wind machine up. We turned the meter backwards so that we were actually exporting energy to Con Ed. I think a failure is a failure of the moment. And the endemic thing about creativity and success eventually is that you just keep hacking away till you get there. Ted Kennedy once uh, was quoted as having flown into New York during a blackout, but he saw only one set of lights on in, in the Lower East Side and, and realized from the, the articles that were written about us that uh, that was the little wind machine that could, <laughs> that 519 East 11th Street and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Over the 48 hours of Longshot Radio, we received 75 pieces of raw tape and ended up with about 25 finished stories. So obviously, there's a lot more audio at longshotradio.com and longshotradio.tumblr.com. Go there to see a full list of credits and thank yous. Some really amazing people helped make this happen in just two days. And if you want to make radio with us the next time around, email longshotradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at longshotradio. Thanks for listening.